everyone, you're here at the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab and our expert podcast series on post-COVID reset, that is a reset, a more equitable and smart path. As customary here, this conversation will cover both the concrete policy measures that could be conducive to such a recovery and the data, the knowledge and the evidence we hold that could inform such policy shifts. Our expert today is Gloria Origi. Gloria is a philosopher and the director of research at the CNRS in Paris. Gloria's focus is on the impact of social relations and institutions on the organization of knowledge. That is to say that Gloria works on topics such as trust in science, reputation, and the evaluation of knowledge and the evidence. This is exactly what we're discussing today, and we're very happy to have Gloria here helping us to navigate these waters. Gloria, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm Yulia Shevchuk, UNESCO's lead on inclusive policies and knowledge policy nexus, and I'm your host today. So Gloria, let's start with the foundation. Tell us what trust in science is, according to you, and what does it mean in concrete and practical terms for the public to actually trust or mistrust science? Well, let's start to say that trust is a situation of vulnerability. We are vulnerable to information that can be false that can be harmful to us and when we trust someone we put ourselves in a situation of vulnerability so it is normal that people just defend themselves and don't have a sort of a default trustful attitude towards other because when we trust we are in a situation of power asymmetry and knowledge asymmetry so that means that we in a sense surrender our own reasons and accept the reasons of someone else in order to come to believe something. So the situation of trust in science in a situation in which the public is vulnerable to information that it cannot exactly evaluate and control, and it accepts to surrender its own vision and perception and reasoning about the world and accept the authority of someone else. So it's a situation that is Trust is a cognitive notion, it's a state of mind, and on the other, as you see, given the vulnerability that it implies, is a very emotional state of mind in uh, which we want to have uh, guarantees and assurance that we are putting our trust into the right person and into the right institutions, etc., etc. You talked about the symmetry and trust. When it comes to the public and the science as two parties to this equation, they indeed not on equal footing in terms of the understanding of science or the methods or the outcomes or the negative and the positive corollaries. So how do such asymmetries play into this relation of trust, a very specific form of trust indeed? I think that uh, the case of trust in science is a very special case of trust, even if it elicits emotions, elicited also in uh, other cases of interpersonal trust, because, as you said, because of this asymmetry. I mean, this is a situation in which we cannot master the evidence that can uh, confirm or disconfirm a certain belief that we have about a certain scientific fact. So we really rely on uh, expertise. So we are in a situation of uh, knowledge asymmetry, in a situation that we are used to. We know that we cannot master all the possible knowledge, scientific knowledge in the world. And so it is uh, in the case of uh, knowledge asymmetries, and we don't want to trust only for strategic reasons or emotional reasons, we want our trust to be based on some sort of 
reasonable evidence. We want to have evidence that the experts are real experts, are actual experts. And I would say that it is a very special case of trust that demands for particular treatment. So I worked a lot on this notion of epistemic trust. So what is this particular form of trust that is involved when we come to believe what other people say on the recognition of their superior knowledge in a domain. And when epistemic trust is needed, is solicited, we want to have reasons to trust. We don't just rely on our intuitive reactions to other people. For example, in interpersonal trust, in, in social trust, we have so many different ways of trusting other people. Sometimes you trust a person that you don't know, whom you don't know because of a certain intuition about this person, about her personality, about the fact that you can get along with this person, etc. In the case of scientific trust, epistemic trust, in the case of trust in which we are going to acquire knowledge that is important for us, we want to have reasons, so reasons that we can articulate why do I trust this expert instead of this other expert? Why do I trust that climate change is happening? Why do I trust that vaccines are useful to fight COVID? I want to be able to articulate a reason of my trust, not just say, well, because a friend of mine say that. I, I want to have more robust grounds for my trust. Now, let's put it bluntly. Why do we need this trust in science, in regulatory science specifically? Why does it matter, especially when it comes to collective decision-making, to policy and to the uptake uh, and acceptance of the public of such? For many people, trust in science doesn't matter at all. I think there has been a period I would say from the birth of modern science in the 17th century until the 19th century, trust in science was not a sort of fundamental trust relation that we needed in order to make decisions about our lives, etc. Science was a quite separated activity from the other activities of the world. And so the trust in science that was important at the beginning of the history of modern science, I would say with the scientific revolution in the 17th century, was trust among scientists, how scientists used to trust among themselves and develop practices of filtering good data and bad data, all the practices that we use even today, like peer review, etc. But today, trust in science has become the more and more important and more and more fundamental for our lives because we live in technocratic, scientific technocratic democracies, and many of the political choices that are made at societal level depend on scientific results. A policy to reduce energy consumption, for example, is based on the fact that it is not sustainable in the long run because of climate change or things of, of this kind. And so we feel that science today touches upon many aspects of our daily life, what we eat, for example, what we breathe, what are the perspectives of the life in this planet for our children. And so science has become a technique of governance. So the interplay between science and, and politics is much stronger today. The way in which science works today and uh, its relation to, uh, to policymaking 
uh, is such that trust in science becomes uh, becomes central in uh, in our life, even if it is true that many people just don't care. So you mentioned science and scientific evidence and knowledge uh, as a tool often in governance. And that uh, made me think we had a separate conversation uh, under this uh, stream talking about different kinds of science. We use yeah. usually one blanket notion to cover a lot of many things. However, there is a difference uh, when it comes to public trust in, uh, in science if you dissect it by regulatory science, by expertise, by normal science and other forms. The alarm is often that trust is eroding in general. But do you think it's eroding in general or it's related to certain types of science, such as regulatory science, for example? Well, this Perisha European program on um, uh, trust in science, we collected data that showed trust in science is not eroding. What is really eroding is trust in government. As a consequence of this distrust in government, science can be distrusted because it is seen, as you say, as a, a regulatory science that is at the service of governments. Experts are particular characters in our world. They can be pure scientists, but they have they are scientists who have an appointed role in some kind of institutions, I mean, in governmental institutions, in committees. So they have all, not only scientific responsibility and epistemic responsibility, but they have also political responsibilities and ethical and moral societal responsibilities. So I think that the distrust we have seen during these years of pandemic towards science came from the distrust in government and distrust in science came as a consequence. The fact that uh, people saw uh, many scientists as too related to expert committees, uh, etc. The scientists that were exposed were not uh, the scientists that uh, do normal science, but they were typically experts appointed to Dr. Fauci in the United States uh, or uh, uh, other characters in Europe, etc., were scientists appointed to perform a certain task had also political consequences. So I think that the distrust in science comes more from the distrust in, uh, in government. Well, how do we rebuild this trust and do we need to rebuild it? I would say definitely so. We had a very short transition in terms of years from science as an activity in an ivory tower, I would say until the end of the 19th century, to a science that was invested by governments as a tool for power, like technoscience, medical technoscience, statistics to control the population, fabrication of weapons. But many values and practices in science are still dependent on this old ivory tower model. So we do our stuff. There are no stakeholders other than our peers. We are in our bubble. We know what we do and just don't ask us to explain to you because you're too stupid to understand. And so we know what we do. We give, we provide results to government that are the official paradigmatic truth for a certain period, for a certain era, for a certain policy at a certain time, and we don't need to give 
justifications because the system of justifications and legitimation is internal to science. It's not external to science. This is something that distinguishes even today's science from other activities like business, other activities whose uh, final legitimations come from the public, from the external world. I mean, if I have a good product, I know that I have a good product because people buy it. So this is my final legitimation of what I'm doing and comes from the external world. Whereas in science, it is true that the legitimation of what we are doing is right comes from our internal world, from the world of peers. There have been at least 40 years of studies, uh, for example, science and technology in society, of sociology of science, that have tried to free science from this ivory tower model and insist on the importance of science to understand its own values and biases and learn how to communicate with the public and how to accept also the external world as a source of legitimation of its activities. And a lot of work has been done and is going on today in what we call science communication studies. And I think that in order to reestablish a trust in regulatory science, part of science that is so exposed also to public policies and governmental influence, we need to rethink how science is communicated. We touched on COVID, but let's go a bit deeper into this and how it changed the situation when it comes to trust in science. You wrote on this, you discussed uh, some of the mistakes that were made when responding to public's uncertainties in relation to science and evidence in the context of COVID. Could you elaborate on those and tell us uh, how you think these mistakes could be avoided in the future? COVID was a very special situation of overexposure of science to the public. People became uh, familiar with statistical tables, with scientific terms like the air factor, to what it is uh, a random control trial and why an experiment is well done or if there are random control trials that go with the experiments, etc. So the vocabulary of science has started to flow and to circulate into newspapers and media and social networks, etc. So science was clearly overexposed. I think in a situation of high uncertainty, the mistakes that were made were basically communication mistakes, I mean, incapacity to explain what science is made of, I mean, which is made of provisory truth, they change that change uh, over time. Uh, and of course, we were in a very urgent situation, so we could not have had a citizen assembly uh, about the decision of the Green Pass as we had, uh, for example, in France. But I think that the communication was too authoritarian, that it was also focused on the negative consequence of not doing this and that instead of the positive consequence of doing this and that. And we know from psychology, from cognitive science, for example, that there is an important role of the valence of an information. If it has a positive or negative balance in order to be accepted by people. So instead of uh, insisting on a rhetoric about possible negative consequence of not complying with some policies, it would have been better in some situation to describe the positive consequences uh, instead. So playing not uh, on fear, but more on hope. And science is an activity of hope. For example, 
about the possible risks of uh, taking a vaccine. The risk of thrombosis for some categories of vaccines was uh, at a certain percentage. This percentage was uh, a significant number of times uh, less important than the risk that we have when we fly overseas, for example. So the risk when you take a plane and you have a long flight, the risk of thrombosis a huge percentage more probable than taking a vaccine. So, for example, taking these concrete examples in which people say, well, if I'm not afraid of traveling to the United States, why should I be afraid to take a vaccine, given that traveling is more dangerous than taking a vaccine? So I think that there could have been much better ways of communicating. I think that recognizing that there was also a certain, I would say, unique view of how things should have been done and probably there were alternatives and again but this is not an effect uh, only of science it's an effect of contemporary polarization of beliefs the fact that we for only every issue that was this polarization of don't look up to make reference at this movie that was a success uh, and was a little bit of a, the metaphor on how debates uh, go on today. I mean, immediately there was this sort of polarization between the anti-vax and the pro-vax, pro-social distancing and the anti-social distancing. So this is a a more complex effect to explain, I mean, that has to do with how information flows these days. But I mean, in general, I think that if people feel that uh, there is a big authority that is not challenged, that say you should do that, the first reaction is just uh, to resist. I mean, we have a resistance, a cognitive resistance to being told uh, what to think and what to do. And uh, and so, and there, there has been too much uh, authoritarian take on this pandemic in a situation of high uncertainty because we had data that changed every three hours. Uh, and so maybe explaining a little bit more the dialectic of science, the fact that we have new evidence and then again new evidence that falsifies the previous evidence and we go on with trials and errors. I mean, we don't have certainty. So this idea that there was a sort of right and unique reading of the fact and the evidence just is something that people have resistance to accept. Allow me to play devil's advocate or to stand up a bit for sciences and scientists. You mentioned so many things. You mentioned overexposure to science, uh, COVID, social media plays into it. There are so many factors and so many demands put on sciences, as in they have to produce rock-solid science, they have to communicate expertly about it, they have to deliver clear-cut messages and communication, while science is an inherently not a clear-cut and easy exercise. Mm-hmm. Isn't that too much to ask of the scientist? Isn't the word uh, too tall? I totally understand, but maybe this is also the way in which science is constructed today. I mean, we can probably imagine other ways of educate scientists uh, to a more open way of communicating about the results. Science is changing a lot. I mean, I follow my colleagues in social science on Twitter. People communicate much better. Tools like videos and graphs, etc., helps us to make our results understandable. 
there are good communicators that are able to make the message go through and communicators that don't, uh, uh, that are unable to make the message go through. There is a lot to do, there is a lot to change even in how scientists are educated, to what extent are they aware of the values and prejudices that orient their own research, how inclusive and diverse science should be. These are discussions that are on the table today, even in the scientific community. So I think that, of course, it was a, a strong pressure on the scientists. It was a very strong pressure on the citizens that had to sort of surrender and trust on things that were of vital importance for them. There are many things that can be improved. And that is what I think many fields in social sciences are doing these days. I was mentioning science communication studies, sociology of science, many people who work today on critical thinking and developing critical thinking within um, the education curricula of uh, our kids, etc., etc., in order to regain or gain rational discussion, rational debate, and a debate based on reasons, even between experts and non-experts. So do you take it right that your stance is overexposure to science is here to stay? We will need greater and more sharp communication by the sciences and the scientists. There will be a general trend of democratization of knowledge and science. So these are to be taken as givens, and we just need to understand how to manage them better and how to inbuild these skills and foster them within the scientific communities? Well, in my own research as a social scientist, I'm really pushing for an opening of science to more participatory way of working within the peer community, a more inclusive and diverse way of working together, and between the scientific community of peers and the larger public. I think that today science is so overexposed that needs legitimation that is outside the community of peers. And even investing in science needs a legitimation that is out of the community of peers. So creating new bridges, new interdisciplinary platform of discussion, for example, of confrontation between different fields of science, but also between scientists and non-scientists. We talk a lot today about participatory democracy. Science is a sort of fundamental ingredient. It's a collective enterprise, and it is a fundamental ingredient of our democracies and of the survival of our democracies. And I think that an effort to develop a more participatory science is only good. It can really improve how science is made today and the quality of its results. Gloria, a rich last part of this conversation dedicated to recommendations and messages. If you are to distill key pointers to knowledge communities and to policymakers on how to forge and how to rebuild trust in science, what would those be? Oh, that's a, that's a hard job and a difficult task, and I uh, I have enough humility uh, not to feel comfortable with your with your question. And but it, you're right that, for example, in uh, within the Perisha project, uh, 
uh, on trust in science, uh, um, we have a part of the project that is dedicated to uh, create uh, a number of recommendations for, um, for the scientific community and for the policymaker uh, in order to improve trust uh, in science. So um, I would say some things. One is uh, the role of experts, making the role of expert as uh, transparent as possible. I mean, experts are appointed through opaque procedures. They are not always the best experts, even for the scientific community. Experts uh, must show not only their competence, but also their goodwill of taking into account the interests of the population. So one of the big problems today is that we don't know who are the reliable experts. For the average population that gather information through internet, etc., the expert A, which is sort of the legitimate expert, the one that the scientific community recognizes, and the expert B, the guy who manufactures evidence for uh, propaganda reasons, etc., there is no difference. There are no cues in order to distinguish between the two. And... Uh, if you the only policy you have is that just to tell people these are the experts and without explaining them how to become a connoisseur, how to develop a competence for recognizing who are the good experts, they construct in a sense expertise in a way that becomes something that is understandable, not the science. We don't need to understand the science, but we do, should need them. And, and the average public and the lay people should need to understand what makes of a person a good expert. I think that people use some sort of intuitive social indicators of uh, trust and reputation. I mean, the exposure of a scientist, uh, how many followers uh, the scientist has on Twitter, uh, on uh, these things that are very rudimentary, but I think we can provide better tools for people not to navigate science, the content, but making people more competent about what does it mean to be an expert that acts by taking account their interests. I think this is a, a challenge. That's very interesting. Well, we discussed many things, including ivory towers. And what I understand, uh, if I understand your position correctly, is that the ivory tower of science is collapsing slowly and yeah. coming down to the people. So we need to rebuild and restructure from within the sciences to meet these trends because they are here to stay. Science is everywhere in our lives, in what we eat, in a sandwich, in a gym practice, in a choice of where to go on vacation when we measure, for example, the quality of air in a certain location. So science is diffused knowledge and this sort of distributed collective infiltrated aspect of sciences should be an advantage and not an obstacle to distribute knowledge in a better way because what we want in the end is not only a good science of course but also an equal distribution of knowledge. Gloria, thank you very much. It was a very interesting conversation. I hope our listeners will find it uh, as uh, stimulating as I did. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Julia. To all of our listeners, thank you for being here. And for more, follow the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab and our podcast channel, The Policy Nerd.